0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club.
1: Good afternoon. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club of California. My name is Gerald Harris. I am chair of the club's Science and Technology uh, member-led forum and your host for this afternoon. The objective of the Science and Technology Forum is to develop a broad-based community of shared interest that produces superb programs focused on the issues in science and technology in the whole world, since the world is involved in science and technology. We welcome your participation in sharing your ideas. In fact, on March 26th, uh, we will have an open meeting of the uh, Science and Technology Group where we welcome you to come and participate, suggest ideas, join our group if you would like. It is our pleasure to extend. A special welcome to any new club members who are here. We know you will enjoy your membership and look forward to seeing you often. We also welcome our long-standing members as well. At this time, please turn off your cell phones, that includes mine that I have to get to, <laughs> and other noise-making devices as we are recording uh, this afternoon's program for the club's podcast. That po- podcast should be available within the next three to four days. Uh, you can check the club's website. Uh, This is just one of the outstanding programs of the Commonwealth Club. I invite you to check our website for a complete listing of the programs on a wide range of topics. You can register for these programs at www.commonwealthclub.org or by calling the club's 24-hour reservation line. It is now my pleasure to introduce this afternoon's speaker, Chandra Nayar. I have had the pleasure of meeting him uh, probably about a year ago when he was working on this outstanding book, The Sustainable State The Future of Government, Economy, and Society. He is the author of the bestseller, Consumptionomics Asia's Role in Reshaping Capitalism and Saving the Planet. His photo project book, The Other Hundred, aims to provide a counterpoint to the mainstream media consensus about some of today's most important issues. Chandran frequently speaks at major global gatherings such as the World Economic Forum in Davos and the APEC, where his his thought leadership is sought for its fresh insights and intellectual honesty. And I guarantee you, he is certainly intellectually honest. You may not agree, but he's clear. He was the chairman of the Environmental Resources Management Group in Asia and Asia Pacific until 2004, and established it as the leading environmental as a leading environmental consultancy. For more than a decade, he has championed the cause of sustainable development. Please join me in welcoming Shandran Nair. Thank you. Thank
0: you.
2: Thank you. Uh, Thank you, everyone, for coming. Um, I was expecting about 500 people. (laughs) The last time I spoke in Asia, there was about 300. But, you know, we have more people than you have. Uh, We have more efficient public transport, I suspect, in some parts. Uh, But uh, thank you for coming. Um, What I'm going to try and do is sketch out um, some of the arguments of the book. And uh, hopefully an American audience will kind of tune into some of what I'm saying without thinking I'm anti-Western. I think there is a tendency, particularly when I speak in the USA, more so than Europe, to see a non-Western perspective as being anti-Western. So I beg you to not to jump to those lazy conclusions. Um, But let me start by saying um, what the, the purpose of the book was. Um, I had one sole intention in writing the book, and that was to essentially upturn the current global narrative around the notion of sustainability. And that was my single, single purpose. Um, to create a narrative that provides a new terms of reference for the discussion. And part of it comes from my, my work in that area over 30 years. And I felt there was a need to be more intellectually honest. You all live in the United States. Uh, you will know, will not be shocked if I say that we live in an era of great intellectual dishonesty. A dishonesty that permeates politics, business, and dare I say, academia as well. And I have for 30 years worked at the crossroads. I'm an engineer by profession, uh, at the crossroads of environmental management, Economic development, rural development, engineering projects, leadership, and in teaching. And uh, during that time, particularly with my deep uh, interests and through that the acquisition of knowledge around this issue of sustainability, I came to the conclusion that much of the established narrative was hocus pocus. I also realized that much of the intellectual discourse were framed by people from the West. Uh, and, and that's not a bad, necessarily a bad thing, but I also began to understand that um, the narrative on unsustainability was framed by people who came from the most unsustainable societies on the planet. There was something a bit odd about that picture. Uh, so, and at the same time, if you buy into my argument about intellectual dishonesty, and that so-called thought leaders are captive to paymasters, uh, they were not willing or able to essentially dive deeper into the challenges that that we face. And so, my first book was an attempt to essentially say that. None of the discussions we can have about uh, environment uh, and uh, sustainability um, can go very far until we understand that we have essentially designed an economic model premised on essentially promoting relentless consumption. Uh, Buy things you don't need with money you don't have. Uh, It's the great American model, I think. Go to the mall. Uh, And if you're middle class, to impress people you don't like. And that economic model, you don't need to be a rocket scientist to understand, is essentially now at war with the planet. It's essentially destructive. It's aided and abetted by what is an ideological fetish called the free market. And that in itself is now at war with both people and the planet. And please, when I say those things, uh, a lot of people might start to say, oh my God, this guy's a bit of an environmentalist. Uh, He must be a card-carrying member of Greenpeace. Uh, i 'm not I live in Hong Kong. Uh, I probably pay higher rent than most of you. Uh, I have no problems with capitalism, etc. But I do think we need to start to understand what the the challenge at hand is and so this book, The The Sustainable State, was my attempt to essentially reframe the global discussion about the notions about sustainability. And to do that, I, I, I admit that I have to be rather bold. Uh, I'm not making too many friends, and nor was the intention to make friends. Um, much of book writing these days is about how many books you can sell. So say all the nice things that people want to hear, and you might get popular. Uh, but I was more interested in being uh, very brutally honest about the conundrum that we face, and thus the boldness. Um, What I came to understand over 30 years of working in this area was the utter denial at the heart of much of the construct, the intellectual dishonesty matched by the ignorance of the real world. And what I am trying to do with this book is to say, let's look at it from a different point of view. So in a nutshell, what the book attempts to do is to say that if you believe, like I do, that the 21st century will be unique in human history uh, because of the existential threats posed by a peaking population of about 10 to 12 billion, depending on uh, uh, which, which stats you want to believe, essentially climate change, what I call the overreach of technology, Gerald and I were just talking about it. The moment you say technology is part of the problem, you must be a Luddite. Uh, I've been saying for 10 years that technology, we have overreach of technology, too much technology for our own good. And and much of the technology is attuned towards making things a lot more convenient, easier, more, faster, and making us dumber. Uh, The only people who talk about the virtues of technology uh, in the sense of it being Um, A panacea for all our ills are the owners of tech. Uh, And the other thing we have confused is technology is digitization rather than technology. In my view, the most important technology the world needs today are toilets. Toilets are very sophisticated technology. Uh, 80% of the world probably don't have access to what you consider uh, and take for granted, which is a toilet. Uh, overreach of so so uh, the 21st century would be defined by those things: population peaking, uh, climate change, overreach of technology, and the crisis of what I call capitalism, which is the the an economic model that essentially thrives on overconsumption through the 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 externalization of costs both at the extractive stage and at the at the consumption stage. So if you look at two of the, the largest companies in the world in terms of market cap today. I think one of them is Apple, the other is Amazon. Apple's business model is premised on essentially plant obsolescence. And we've, we've valued, the, the, the most valuable company today in the world is one that is based, its business model is essentially throwing things away. Amazon is based on buying junk, reduced price, externalizing costs. Uh, if you start Internalizing the cost of these uh, business models, then you have a very different, different business model. Uh, I'm not sure what an iPad costs today uh, in the USA. What's it cost? A thousand US, maybe. So I've argued that the true price of an iPad is probably ten thousand bucks. If you take in the true cost of all the externalities, the 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 rare metals, the earth, the carbon footprint, etc., and the labor cost. Uh, there is no secret to why your iPads are not made in California, and they're made elsewhere, and uh, they are disposed all over the world, but not in California. So the disposal costs, etc. I've challenged business books to prove me wrong. Uh, uh, all of them have run scared of trying to prove me wrong. That the true price is probably ten thousand, but even if it's five thousand, I win the bet. Uh, so our entire business model is essentially based on making things ch- cheaper so that we, the lemmings, consumers, can essentially continue to consume to drive the economic, the economic model. And um, so the question then is, why does that relate to the need for a different discussion about sustainability? So the book basically says that if we are to deal with a, a global sustainability crisis, be it climate change, water resources, plastics in the ocean, you name it, then we will have to essentially understand that we will have to have draconian rules, draconian rules. So my argument is, I think advanced democracies are incapable of enforcing draconian rules. I was at a dinner last night with uh, some of the leading companies in the Bay Area. I will not name them. Uh, and there were, you know young, earnest people, you know, they all jump into this, "I want to save the planet." Um, and people couldn't understand that, that uh, no one would die if you banned plastic bottles. No one would. Um, but they saw it as unrealistic to suggest that you could have policies that would essentially ban plastic bottles. Uh, but you could. Uh, but there's no shortcut to those uh, single-use straws is tinkering at the edges. I think there's a term called pissing in the wind. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's tinkering at the edges. Get rid of the straws, period. Um, we used to have laws. We have laws. I wonder if uh, in this day and age, where in democracies, with the, the, the view of freedoms is so expansive that we could even now today introduce laws like seat belts, you know, freedom. Uh, my god, technology will solve that problem. You don't need a seat belt. You will be warned in advance if you're going to hit somebody. Um, I wonder if um, we would, in fact, today be able to introduce things like drink and drive laws. Because, my God, if you drank enough, technology would not start the car or something like that. And maybe you could do that. But we have such an expansive view of what our freedoms are that it's very difficult in advanced economies, in my view, to now start to change. So on one hand, I, my focus, therefore, has been to not allow that expansive view of rights and freedoms to essentially inflict the ability of the rest of the world to cope with the constrained 21st century. So the book, therefore, starts to make five points which I will uh, broadly talk about, and then I'm happy to answer answer questions. The first was to debunk the idea of sustainability, as it is currently discussed, and to distinguish between environmental protection and sustainability. Much of what large companies, etc., do, and much of what governments talk about, is essentially, particularly in more advanced economies, is a bit of environmental protection. So let me give you one example. I think in the USA, the discussion about mobility and sustainability is typically more about uh, uh, perhaps fuel efficiencies, more efficient, uh, re- reducing emissions in fuels, uh, and a bit like that. Uh, but no one does talk, talks about getting rid of cars, uh, getting rid of car parks, uh, restricting your right to ride, or increasing fuel prices. Has any American president ever suggested that you might increase fuel prices? No way. Right? That would be the kiss of death. It's like asking people to give away the guns. Worse. Okay. okay. I didn't know there was anything worse than that. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> But, uh, so, uh, so there's real confusion about this. Um, water conservation is a bit about recycling and things like that, but in California, and some of you will probably know, which is, uh, which is probably one of the most, uh, the predictions are most drought-stricken areas in the world going forward. And if you see some of the NASA predictions over the next 50 years, there's gonna be a lot of burning. Uh, would there be laws that essentially prevent people from having uh, swimming pools, restriction on lawns, uh, watering, all of those things? And in fact, restrictions on where people can live because the cost of people having the right to live in essentially dangerous areas is huge on the taxpayer, etc. Will this happen? Does the state have the power to do it? I am not sure. Again, when I spoke uh, on a Tuesday at UCLA, um, a couple of people did say to me that they live in fire risk areas and they would have to move uh, but not through the, the the laws at the moment because there are no laws that are going to demand that they move but they will move for their own safety. But I think this is coming and we would have to do this uh, but I'm not sure the liberal states can do this. So... So, so, when we talk about environmental protection and sustainability, there are two very different issues, and they depend on the, the nature of the political systems. So, the first part of the book discusses the differences between environmental protection and sustainability uh, in, in this broader sense. The second one is the idea that the private sector and companies is, is essentially can deliver on sustainability goals. And this is hocus pocus. Uh, So I try and debunk that. It doesn't make companies bad or evil, but that's not the nature of the beast. Uh, You can't ask Pizza Hut to sell less pizzas. Uh, You can't ask GM to sell less cars. But you can tinker with emissions. Uh, You can make them a bit more efficient. But meanwhile, please do not tackle the issue of gasoline prices. Uh, Do not have road pricing. Do you have road pricing in... No. So these are the most basic things you don't have because the freedoms are so expansive. So the idea that private companies could address the issue of sustainability is something that in the world I live in, attending business forums all over the world, I'm often sitting here on a panel with CEOs from large multinational companies talking a lot of hogwash about how their companies are committed to sustainability. All they do is tinker around the edges with a bit of environmental protection, a bit of water recycling, carbon footprint reduction. All good, but that's not sustainable. Sustainability is deciding that you will not sell your cars anymore in this area, and this is the premium on the car. And by the way, those, uh, 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 those uh, fizzy drinks will reduce the sugar content by 90% if, we are, if you are to sell it. That's sustainability, and that is the rule of law. Companies don't do that. The other point about sustainability, of course, is the notion of less. Uh, companies don't do less, they do more. All right, so so that doesn't make them bad, but essentially all companies have a license to operate, and in a constrained power planet, those license that license to operate will have to essentially embed in them much stricter rules. What do companies fear the most? Regulation. Uh, And uh, therein lies the the tension. So only the state can start to impose those things, how much ketchup you might have in fast foods, rather than uh, pretend to introduce a lettuce into some junk food. So the second part of what I've tried to discuss is, this is not what the companies do, and this is not the private sector's motivation. This, This is not what drives them, but it doesn't make them evil. It's just not what they do. So the third part of the boat then gets to the heart of the, the, the discussion, which is to say the narrative in the Western world, which has been exported to the rest of the world about sustainability, is very, very much about how do we keep our privileges and tinker around the edges? So how do we have a bit of CSR? How do we recycle of the straws? And how can we tinker? But not fundamentally change, because that requires sacrifice. And sacrifice is not something that people who have are willing to essentially embrace. You can't. It's very difficult to do. The good thing for the world is the privileged classes account for perhaps less than 20% of the world, the, 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 the advanced economies of the world. The majority of the world, which is the bad thing, are poorer. But therein lies the opportunity to essentially change the, the discussion so let me uh not because I look like this, but let let me give India as the sort of example and then compare it with China because that's essentially the front line i mean uh the last thing I want to say is because I want to focus on the majority rather than the the peculiar fascinations in the developed uh, in the developed world about what they're going to do um the last thing I would say is that. In the more advanced economies, uh, the discussion is really about maintaining privilege, entitlements. It's difficult, and that's understandable. It's a human condition. Political systems have been uh, created around essentially uh, allowing people to believe they can have everything. So, if you look at in France, uh, Macron tried to essentially introduce a basic, you know, Paris Accord, right? A basic fuel tax. What did the enlightened French people say? No way. We want to save the world, but my God, don't ask us to sacrifice anything. Please ask those nasty Chinese to do something about saving the world. Well, we retain our privileges. So I think this is going to be, that's going to be a very difficult thing. I have some things in the book where I argue about what advanced economies might do in terms of essentially making their democracies essentially more amenable to dealing with the existential threats. But I'm not sure it's going to be easy. But what does the majority do? In my first book, I argue that essentially, the developing world has essentially sought to emulate and ape the Western economic model, uh, because we don't know anything better. Uh, post decolonization, et etc. the only economic models we knew were essentially those of the Western world, which is essentially based on consumption, Exceptionalism and externalization costs. Uh, I chide uh, Asian students when they come to the United States, etc, that they, they come to learn all the wrong things and then go back and become the stormtroopers for essentially the wrong economic model. But we are subservient. Uh, we don't know better. Uh, we, learn, we learn what it looks like in the Western world and we take it back. Now I say this uh, because it is important to understand how subservient we are. Someone in the West will not appreciate how subservient those who have been colonized actually are, and why we don't know better and have aped everything from the economic model of the West. I'm going to kid you more and say that um, in Asia today, if Jeffrey Sachs turned up, there'd be 500 people in this room. I turn up, and there's about 50. Uh, It's not bad. But it's because we think the wisdom comes from the Western world. In the Western world, it's more like, well, they can't know much anyway. So uh, what's there to, to learn? But having understood that, now we need a new narrative. And people like me are trying to say, we need to think anew about this. So here is what I, I talk about the core argument in the book, that in the developing world, the challenges of sustainability is absolutely the opposite of those in the advanced world. The advanced world is about, let's reduce our emissions a bit, etc., get all these targets done, and continue to preserve the lifestyles we enjoy, which is understandable. In the developing world, it's completely different. The majority of the population don't have what I call the basic rights to life. So I'm going to take India as an example and say, for instance, 600 million Indians still open, uh, practice open defecation. I, I understand the numbers in San Francisco are rising. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, I think it'll take a while before you catch up with him, my, my brothers and sisters in India. Um, 600 million. Then we can talk about housing. Uh, something like... 700 million Indians don't have a permanent home. Take that across Asia, Africa, et cetera, you run into billions. Uh, That right to those basic rights are not going to come because we'll start having a free market in which uh, people will work for Walmart, FDI, save a few pennies in a bank, and then buy a house through a mortgage. This is not going to happen. Now, on the other hand, those basic rights to life, which I call food safe and secure supplies, which is a big thing in itself, uh, which, is, which I, I won't go into all the details. Um, food supply will be one of the, the most critical things confronting the, the people of the developing world. Second is a home, uh, an abode, which, with which comes oh, basic water and sanitation facilities. Most people in the world don't have access to that. Uh, then we have essentially basic energy needs. Uh, and we're not talking heating and cooling systems. We're just talking a bulb and a basic uh, uh, energy for cooking, etc. And then we're talking about public health access and education, the basic rights of life. You will note I haven't included as basic rights freedom of speech and stuff. Those are luxuries that we can... Uh, we can talk about when we have the basic rights lab. But to just meet those basic rights uh, in the developing world of hundreds of billions of people will upturn the material resources of the world. There's a couple of books that have been written about just the amount of material you would need to essentially provide basic housing. We're not talking about uh, you know, 3,000 square meters in a lawn. Uh, we're talking uh, and the barbecue pit and the swimming pool. Uh, uh, we're not talking about uh, anything more than perhaps um, 700 square foot uh, for a family of about six. Basic, basic stuff. Uh, no bathtubs, uh, not even shower heads perhaps, basic things. But the dignity of essentially and the security of, uh, of uh, moving people away from the drudgery of life. Uh, which is uh, engulfs the lives of many. Just to do that would essentially increase emissions around the world. So my argument is the 21st century will be messy whether we like it or not. Much of the discussion is about, oh, we need to reduce emissions, cap carbon, et cetera. This ain't going to happen in the developing world because there is the majority who still have their basic rights uh, are not met, and these need to be de- developed. And there's no, there's, there are more efficient ways, but you're not going to reduce the fact that uh, resources are going to be stretched, and emissions will continue to rise. To meet the, And those people have a right for their basic needs to be, to be met. So that's a very different problem with sustainability. Now, the question is, how do these large countries allow their people, their populations, these basic rights, without completely dooming the planet? That is the question. The argument I make is the, the stresses are going to be there. It's going to be extremely stressful. You might not feel it here. But the ramifications and the, the ripple effects will be felt around the world. In fact, they are being felt. But to do that, um, the governments of those large countries will need to be extremely, what I call, strong. In fact, I call them uh, strong states, that will need to essentially impose law and order so that collective welfare takes precedence over individual rights. So let me give you an example. Um, if, uh, if, for instance, you wanted to build 100,000 homes in a certain area in China, the Chinese government would essentially make uh, a simple calculation 100,000 people would benefit. Oh, let, me, let me just increase those numbers and talk about a fast train from Lanzhou to Xinjiang, uh, several hundred kilometers, of uh, kilometers, and it would benefit 50 million people. In doing that, you might have to move 50,000 people. The equation in, is rather simple. 50 million, 50,000, will move them. I think in this country, if you want to build a fast train, you'd have to ask everyone which Starbucks they'd like to stop at and just because, you know, they need to get their cup of coffee, and the fast train eventually becomes a slow train, and then depending on which, uh, which party's in power, nothing happens. Um, so you, you can't make, make decisions. But the India problem is severe in this regard. The inability of the Indian state to work because it's a democracy I would argue, gives it a very, very low chance of dealing with the existential threat of, essentially, sustainability. So my argument is that in the large developing countries of the world, you need very strong states. When I use the word strong, I'm quite often uh, people jump to the conclusion that I'm talking about authoritarian states. What I'm essentially talking about is an effective state that can work in terms of addressing current problems. If I'm very cheeky, I would suggest that today you have a weak state in the United States. It's ineffectual um, because of its uh, rather, what can I say, messy democracy. So you can't do anything. But if you look at, uh, if you look at Europe, the same thing's happening. Democracies are becoming increasingly ineffectual in dealing with existential threats. But on the other hand, uh, they are wealthy enough to continue to essentially kick the can down the road. In the poorer countries of the world, there is no choice. They're going to have to do something and deal with it now. Since I've written the book, uh, and it was published in October, uh, uh, I, I have I travel a lot, not talking about the book, uh, but on the work I do, and I've essentially have uh, done projects since October in China, India, and Indonesia, three of the most populated countries in the world, and certainly in Asia. And the projects i worked on, food supply, housing, and essentially job creation for slums in, J- in Jakarta population, uh, daytime, close to 20 million, um, have uh, confirmed in me my view that there is no alternative to the arguments that I make in the book for a tough, strong state that essentially makes the trade-off between expansive rights and individual freedoms. And so for those countries, um, without a strong state, I can only see chaos uh, in terms of meeting those basic human rights. Now, having said that, therefore, I argue that To do this, these countries will need to essentially start to create policies that essentially start to redefine uh, notions of freedoms and rights. So for instance, um, uh, how many of you have been to Jakarta? Yeah. So you will know that Jakarta probably needs more cars uh, like I need a hole in my head. Right? Um, Same thing if you go to Mumbai. Um, So you're going to need to have a government that's able to essentially restrict car ownerships or put exorbitant uh, costs on the privilege of that, uh, uh, of that luxury. And you can only do this if the state has essentially the power uh, to do that. But you have to start to create a very different narrative around what is the right and what isn't, isn't the rights of, of people uh, in, in those countries.
0: You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Now, back to our program.
2: So those are the five points I, I make in the book about what is sustainability versus environmental protection. The private sector does not deliver on sustainability. It can be legislated to essentially reduce its impacts based on its free ride on externalities. That in the developing world where the majority of the people live, you will need to essentially cede uh, sustainability from the point of view of the fact that the majority don't have to just meet their basic rights, you will we will essentially create uh, very messy conditions. The only way to mitigate would be to therefore decide what can people have once they meet their basic rights, rather than the notion that people can have everything, can have everything that they they desire. Secondly, that when you do that, you'll have to essentially redefine the rights and and uh, freedoms and you'll have to have a very strong state to be able to do that. Um, I then go on to suggest that the sustainable state will, in these countries will have three main obligations. Uh, the first obligation would obviously to essentially ensure that uh, the, the governance systems essentially allocate resources so that the basic rights of people are, are met through fair distribution and access to to resources. Second, that the government will essentially need to construct an economy bearing that in mind that essentially ensures that economic activity internalizes the true costs of consumption. And, and lastly, um, it is to start to think about the notion of what I call a moderate prosperity. And this is a, a Chinese term uh, a term that essentially says you can't have everything, and therefore what does moderate prosperity look like in a very crowded planet or in a very crowded uh, uh, country, and begin to essentially get people to understand that what moderation looks like, and in a way start to dictate what that looks like without, having, uh, without pandering to or hoping that enlightened people will seek moderation. And... Uh, you will know that there are only so few of those, uh, uh, those people. I, again, last night I was with a young woman at, the, at this uh, table with many companies, and she was all about, you know, we need to do something. But I said, Would you give up your, your privileges in terms of do you have a car? And, you know, it's dangerous to, uh, to, to ask people uh, to own up in terms of personal choices. Um, because I, don't, I think that slightly misses the point, too. But she said, it's very difficult for me to do that. Uh, and so it's very difficult to persuade individuals to behave well. Uh, but you do have societal norms and regulation that prevents people from excesses. And I, I argue that in the countries with large populations, where people don't have much, there is, a, uh, there is an appetite to go up, but there's also an appetite to understand where those limits are if we start to essentially talk about those limits rather than opening the floodgates to everything else. I would argue also that in certain cultures, there has always been a tradition of frugality and understanding limits. And over the last 30, 40 years, those understanding, those cultural beliefs, etc., have been eroded as we've essentially fast-tracked Uh, a worldview in which everyone can have everything and there are no limits. Much of that has been uh, aided and abetted by the view from business schools, etc., that there is no limits to essentially our desires and human uh, consumption. Many of you might know that essentially I think the only U.S. president who ever said that the economic model of the United States, based on consumption, was probably a threat to the society, was was Jimmy Carter. And you know who pounced on that? Ronald Reagan. And Ronald Reagan, I think, famously said, there are no limits. The only limits are in our heads. And um, that changed the course of history. But at the same time, I think uh, an ideology has flowed out of particularly the United States and and now to the rest of the world, that all of these uh, challenges can be solved through technological uh, solutions. And uh, we were just talking, you can't turn up anywhere and uh, challenge the role of technology. My God, you must be a Luddite. Uh, you, you will not be invited to the conversations, et cetera, because you, you know, the sponsors don't like you. Um, but I found myself a couple of times, uh, uh, either because the, the conference organizers were bold enough to think that they needed someone to challenge the tech guys, and I've always taken on the tech guys, and frankly, most times I win, because if you appeal... To the true conscience of an audience, uh, then they know what the threat of technology is. And one of the ones things I use often is to—I won't name it—but you know, one of the leading lights of the tech industry was on a platform with me uh, from Google, and I said to the audience here, "Okay, you've all listened to this bullshit, right? You know, you can stream everything, and how many B-movies are you going to watch while sitting on your toilet bowl, right? And if that's progress, good luck." And uh, how many pizzas do you need delivered while watching more Netflix with a drone? Good luck. Um, but let's look at this. How many of you have children? If you think your children are not watching porn at the age of eight, you're in denial. Then I said to people, so where's the technology taken to us? A couple of Americans have said, hey, porn is the least of our worries. So, you know, it confirms my belief that you guys think it's all cool, okay? It's the kind of Californian thing, maybe, I don't know, uh, you know. Uh, uh, in Australia, the average age of kids are watching porn, eight. Here, eight, nine. Now, you might think it's cool, but I can assure you that in older societies, other civilizations not exposed to this, this is, this is destructive. Who's going to control this? If it's Google, I think it's called an algorithm. Uh, if it's a state, it's called censorship in the Western mass media. But we're going to have to deal with this. Um, we had the invisible hand, and now we have the visible fangs. Uh, the inevitability of tech essentially taking over and being destructive. And we're going to have to do something about these, these things. Now. In the developing world, governments are going to have to decide how are they going to essentially uh, create a sustainable future where basic needs are met whilst at the same time preserving the the natural resource base. So I'll just take five minutes to kind of wrap up and open up to to questions. And um, I argue that If you look at the world we live in uh, and look at the largest countries in the world, then China matters, India matters. Um, I would argue that China uh, has delivered more human rights than any country in the world in terms of the basic rights to essentially just five things I mentioned. Uh, A typical reaction would be, oh my god, no freedom of speech. Um, India's got a lot of freedom of speech. No toilets. <laughs> so you can you can talk, but you don't even have the dignity of uh, having, uh, especially for women, even a toilet in the rural areas of India. Um, so much for the freedoms. So uh, I've come to the conclusion that essentially, in terms of meeting these threats uh, with climate change, resource constraints, etc. We will need very strong states. I'm agnostic to whether you call it a democracy or whether you call it uh, communism, whatever. But a strong, effective state is the only means by which we can essentially ensure that the basic rights to life, which is essentially the definition of sustainability without destroying the resource base, is an equation that can, can be managed. And I, I am most fearful that the largest democracy in the world will not be able to do this. The, the largest uh, state-controlled economy has so far proven to be much more effective in dealing with those issues and has the tools uh, to do it, deal with that. And I therefore believe that in our part of the world, we have to essentially decide what does governance look like, what is the nature of governance if we are to meet these threats, but there's no running away from essentially having strong institutions that essentially which are legitimate, which are competent, which can deliver on those uh, on those uh, threats where the majority's needs have to be met, while at the same time posing a real threat to the resource base because those people have a right to that as well so with that, I'll, uh, I'll stop now. And I'm very happy to take uh, any questions. Thank you very much.
1: Again, please join me in uh, thanking Chandra for those fantastic comments. We would like to remind our listening audience that this is a program of the Commonwealth Club of California. We now open the floor for questions. And I'm going to start with, with the first one that I think is very typical in, in the United States. Um, one of the concerns about the strong state is corruption at the top. And you mentioned China, and as we know in the history of China, there was something called the cultural revolution. Yeah. Okay. And so when you, when you argue for this, is we know there's, there's, the corruption is widespread around the world. And in strong states, this tends to, to happen a lot. So what uh, do you have in your book or ideas you have for some kind of check, balance, oversight, or whatever uh, to avoid the likelihood of corruption? Because, remember, they're going to be populated by human beings, yeah, not by engineers, I mean uh, engineered machines. Yeah. Okay? So that's the first question. Okay, thank you. Um,
2: I think it's important to understand, as you said, that corruption in different forms, formed through all societies and, and in, in different economic uh, situations, I think it's also important not to conflate a strong state with a corrupt state. They're not necessarily the same thing. Uh, I was asked the same question uh, last night. Nigeria is very corrupt. Well, it's because it's a weak state, not because it is a strong state. Uh, When China had its uh, cultural revolution, etc., it was essentially a fragmented state that was essentially trying to coalesce around uh, a, single, a single purpose. Today, um, China is uh, still battling corruption, but India is far more corrupt. Uh, India is a weak state that is corrupt. A stronger India would be a state in which corruption is essentially where corruption is accountable. Uh, I mean, just to, to, to give you uh, an example of what I mean. I was in Maharashtra State last week, Maharashtra State, which is where Mumbai is, and there is a drought. Uh, we were working, two weeks ago, we were working uh, on these projects that I do as part of our leadership program around essentially uh, creating farmer-producing centers in rural areas that create self-sufficiency and, uh, and, uh, and agricultural produce that are essentially not just market-driven. Um, in Maharashtra State only, guess how many farmer suicides? 60,000. I mean, these are numbers that you think would be headlines. Headlines more so than what happened in New Zealand last night. But no one talks about it. This would never happen in China today. It could not happen. Um, So the, the point I'm trying to make here is that the failure of the state to essentially create the conditions to essentially empower people to have decent lives, is what I define as a strong state. A state that fails and is corrupt is essentially essentially one that is weak. Another example I'd give you is, if you're building a bridge in China, or a railway line, and it's $100 million, and you'd expect, like in all societies, a siphoning of 10%. What's the percentage here? Uh, just a trick question. Um, but let's say 10% gets siphoned off, but the bridge better be built. And if it collapses, someone will pay very quickly, as has happened with some of the railways. In India, uh, 100 million or 200 million, 60% siphoned off. The bridge takes 20 years to complete. It collapses the, the week later. Nobody goes to jail. That's the difference in terms of the accountability. So. I, don't, I, I would like to argue that the strong state is not the same thing as a corrupt state. A corrupt state is essentially a weak state. And I go into the book into arguing, and just one more example, I Japan is a strong state. And the state, uh, when I talk about the strong state, is the contract between a societal understanding, of how the instruments of society work, and the, the norms that essentially allow the institutions to work. That's why all the toilets in Japan are clean. Anyone be to Japan? Yeah, uh, is it the state cleaning it? No, it's a societal contract, which is my definition of therefore what that state looks like. The Korean state is strong, even if some of the institutions uh, do fail through uh, corruption, etc. But the state, as a wider context, is a, is a, is a stronger state.
0: Taking your Cynthia Scott from Presidio Graduate School, uh, where we're trying to develop leaders. I'm curious about your idea of how do you how do you how are you developing leaders? Maybe you're talking about it somewhere in your in your books or something. But how do you develop strong leaders to build strong states? Yeah. Okay. I mean, and not fall into the corruption. Or how do you how do you build people who have that or encourage that?
2: Well, first, don't send them to Harvard Business School. No, we don't. Yeah. Uh, no make sure none of them go to the business schools and learn how to design a Ponzi scheme. But uh, to most seriously, they um, could send them to my training program. Can uh, you talk but,
0: more about that?
2: Yeah, I'm happy to okay. talk about it. But I think this is an important yeah. question. Yeah. There's no, uh, as you know, there's no mm-hmm. simple answer to it. But I do think, firstly, we need to change the narrative about what leadership looks like mm-hmm. in terms of The world we live in. So the leadership programs I I, uh, we work on and we've built on is essentially say that leadership is not about you know the Jack Welsh model, which was essentially the model that was transported across the world. Go to GE and become a great leader and build a great company. Mm -hmm. What we talk about is essentially to say this is what the world looks like. Mm -hmm. These are the constraints. Mm Um, to be a leader that is able to, you know, build more cars on time on a production line and deliver to customers, that's the easy bit. Mm -hmm. The real leadership now is to understand, essentially, the purpose of the company, the world we live in, what products you do, the externalities of those Mm -hmm. products, ask those hard questions, and then, essentially, have a firm ethical underpinning that essentially starts to question business models. So yesterday, again, I will not uh, mention the tech companies. Um, They were all talking about energy efficiency and stuff. That's the easy stuff. The difficult stuff in the leadership, which is non-existent in these companies, in my view, apart from the functional leadership, which is we can get more market share. That's okay. Go and learn that at Harvard and INSEAD. The real leadership, in my view, today is Is our business model essentially responsible? Now, if you start asking that question, then you start getting into the the realm of uh, true leadership. There are very few schools that teach this. In fact, I know of of very few that do this. Fundamentally asking, what are we doing? Mm -hmm. And not sort of philosophically talking about purpose by getting back to the economics of essentially the business model. And that's kind of what we we try and do, without talking about ethics in an abstract okay. way.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. But one more thing about the indigenous models. You just said something that they, somehow the indigenous... Can, do you see the indigenous models being resurrected, kind of like Confucianism in China and other places, to kind of give that other...
2: I think there. I think there are philosophical underpinnings and cultural underpinnings in these societies which have been uh, come under assault. I. Uh, I think there's an assault of modernity which has essentially got older societies believing that everything they have is essentially old-fashioned and needs to be extinguished. Again, come back to you know why do 80, 90 percent of Indians are vegetarian? It's based on 10,000 years of civilization. And now meat and consumption is increasing in India, which is disastrous. There's a great amount of wisdom. But that wisdom, and even in China, has been eroded by this assault of modernity, which is essentially an assault, and without being too divisive, of westernization. Uh, and this, I think, can be. In Indonesia, there's the whole notion of the garden, the vegetable garden, as self-sufficiency, etc. Those things need to be essentially embraced in much larger ways, rather than the modernization, which is you work in a factory, and you buy your vegetables in the supermarket.
0: <clears throat> Hi, my name is Wayne. I'm a climate activist, is how I describe myself. I'm very impressed with your talk. I will look to, to get in your book. I, I came here expecting to mock you and prove to, prove to you, essentially, that climate change is going to really run us over like a tsunami while we're playing on the beach. Because in essence, we are in all of our great things of making all these things that we make and not paying attention to the larger scale problems, the long term, the long now of what we have to do. We're in deep trouble. Um, How do we... The person who asked about leadership is really important. And and today there was a a movement of school children around the world uh, inspired by Greta Thunberg from Sweden who are really beginning to raise their voices and try to make themselves heard and try to make adults wake up that we're stealing their future. How can we get adults to listen more? How, I, I, it's, it's a big problem because, you know, how do we work on that?
2: I think the only way you get adults to work on it is, uh, it comes back to my point, we only respond to rules. You don't, we don't smoke in this room uh, because I believe there's a rule. Uh, And I I think we adults, and particularly those of us who have misinterpreted what freedom looks like, particularly in the more, uh, what I call mature democracies, have misinterpreted our freedoms in that we, we want everything. And so, you know, I think we should work very hard as adults to not undermine the state. And we should strengthen the state in whichever form and shape rather than seek to undermine it. And so uh, the state, on the other hand, I think needs to be bold and be willing to essentially act. Now, when it comes to the, the movement of children, etc., I think today it's, it's interesting, but I worry about fads. And these are nice things that we want to essentially latch on to. Um, I'm a member of the Club of Rome, and we just sent a letter supporting the kids but you know I'm a reluctant signatory to those kinds of fashionable things, because I think it gives us uh, uh, the sort of comforts we seek without seeking to essentially confront uh, brutal realities. Uh, and, I, I, and I'm not, uh, you know, the other thing that I have been taken to task for is this notion that the millennials are going to change the world. Uh, good luck. Uh, the most narcissistic generation in human history going to change the world? What are you smoking? So, uh, and the other idea is that the millennials, if it's an age group, people essentially focus on the cafe, latte drinks, sipping, you know, bicycle riding, saddle, marijuana smoking, uh, millennials in the first world. Most of the millennials in the world have nothing to share. So when they say, you know, millennials are into sharing, oh yeah, the yuppies are. But most millennials in the world don't have anything to share. They are the people that I'm talking about who don't have their basics met. They are going to be part of the hundreds of millions who will generate more emissions, and they have a right to those emissions because they don't have their basic rights met.
0: Hi, I want to thank you for coming, and I'm sorry our crowd isn't bigger because you certainly have a big message for us. I have a question. I am so caught up in Amazon.com. I mean, it just seems it's so seductive. I mean, I try to say I'm not even going to look at that. But I am just one person. I can think of all the households in America. Yeah. Amazon Prime, free shipping. We have all the boxes. Yeah.
2: How, and the returnables, and they don't pay, no one pays for them.
0: How do we possibly stop?
2: Well, I think Donald Trump's going to take them on. <laughs> That's one company he's right about taking on, right? So Donald Trump got something there when he said, um, hey, they get a free ride on the Postal Service. Charge them. They get a free ride on all that baggage. Charge them. Then, and of course, you've, you've been very honest to admit, we're all lemmings. You know, I've gone on track to say, but the consumer is an idiot. People don't like to hear this, but just go to the supermarket. We are all, as you said, uh, you know, we are prone to being addicted. I mean, that's what Facebook is. That's what Amazon is. This is the new, this is the new cocaine. Now, when you got a cocaine addiction, what do you do? The state needs to intervene. The, fight the drug. Now we need to fight the machine. I, I seriously believe if we don't, um, the consequences are dire. But the, only, but the business model for Amazon and Apple work because they get a free ride, complete free ride, right? So, you, so when the Amazon and Facebook people talk to me about energy efficiencies, that's just tinkering. The real sustainability challenge for them is, are you cool with selling so much junk? Are you cool with a product that is based on plant obsolescence? That is truly, but they can't, but they can't challenge that. Only the state can. But the, when the state is so weak that it's captive to such strong economic interests, it can't do much. And that, that's fundamentally, and we are going to have to do something about it. You're starting to do something on, on the data side, I believe. At least the Europeans are. I'm interested to see how America, the American Senate and all of that, who are the politicians who seem to hold these companies in such awe how they're going to react. But the public seems to be essentially asleep at the wheel. And this is one of the most supposedly one of the most advanced nations in the world. Why are they asleep at the wheel? And I think this requires the state to take their responsibility.
1: Okay, I'm going to squeeze in the last question here. Um, I I think worldwide right now what we're noticing is almost a collapse of our religious institutions. When the Pope apologizes for priests raping nuns in India, we're we're in trouble. Uh, I think I can talk about the conservative church supporting Donald Trump in this country? Sorry? The conservative church in this country supporting Donald Trump. Islam has its problems. So the question I have for you is, in terms of our core moral values, okay, that might help govern us in terms of making decisions around what are we doing and what's important, Is do you have any ideas on how that's going to be rebuilt, reconstituted, changed, or whatever? Because it seems to be... Uh, some collapse going on there that I, I can't put my finger on.
2: I mean, if you uh, if you if we start with the the example you gave of uh, the church and you say there's some collapse, I would argue the collapse has just been hidden for too for a long time. Um, I had uh, a very interesting uh, dinner with a Korean friend of mine. Christianity is big in Korea. I don't know if you know this. Man, they're big into this religion. Uh, I mean, I was born in a Hindu family, by the way. Uh, I used to pray to God, dogs, cats, elephants, and stuff. I'm cool with that. And uh, then I went to, <laughs> and, and uh, you know, I saw images of my gods fornicating on temple walls. So, you know, I understood Pilates before you guys even got near it. <laughs> Uh, and, uh, but I went to a missionary school uh, uh, at, so I used to wake up at 6 and pray to all the gods then go to school and the, the missionary schools uh, the the, the headmasters etc were all white guys with gowns and um, they told me God was a white guy blue eyed, blonde uh, of course later I found out he was Arab actually but I was kind of cool with that too and, uh, but I found out they, they kind of like to cane little boys and turn us around the desk and they used spank us. That's kind of what the Pope's looking into. But, so this stuff is going on. But why I talk about religion is also an important understanding. Because then I lived next to him. I, I was born in a Muslim country. So to this day the call for prayer is from the mosque. It's for me the most spiritual call. Uh, but I was born in a Hindu household. And so it's kind of the openness. But I think the collapse, uh, the, the idea that religion can bring t- to people together, I think is overstated in my view. Um, but I have argued in a piece that I have written and tried to get published that perhaps religion can find a new focus, as you said, with all the religions in some kind of difficulty. Uh, there's Hindu revivalism in India, Islam's got problems, Christianity has got all... I mean, but asking men to take on the faith and curb their sexual desires, I found it's always an oxymoron. Uh, it's called biology. Uh, um, but... Uh, and, and So I've, I've thought of uh, writing a... I've written a piece, which no one's published yet, which means I'm probably onto something, right? Uh, um, that religion too could take on the sustainability cause and put a marker down. And I use plastic as the example. Mm-hmm. Create new meaning. So I, I was in Rome last year at the Club of Rome meeting. And I challenged, uh, asked the, the mayor of Rome to essentially ensure that the Vatican did not allow any plastic at all. Send a message. Mm-hmm. right? So this could become a global movement, much more practical, and that then you galvanize those for whatever reason who still have faith in their religion to take on an action and begin to internalize some sort of morality around the planet. And I thought, how good would it be if then Mecca banned plastics? Right? Imagine the world. The Sikh temple, of, uh, the golden temple in Amrista in Punjab has banned plastics. You can't take anything near it. But imagine all the religious sites around the world ban plastics, and the cities where they are ban plastics. That's where religion could have a huge impact on a scourge, which would then change and give meaning. So I'm not sure if I'm answering your question, but I think religion could use plastic as the way to galvanize the new religion, which is how to essentially live within constraints and, and not waste. So that would be uh, uh, one thing I would sort of get, uh, you know, religion to start to uh, grapple with.
1: Again, thank me. Uh, join me in thanking Chandra Nayar for his fantastic presentation. Is... Thank you. Meeting at the Commonwealth Club is now adjourned. Thank you. Thank you very uh, much. The we'll be outside. Uh, books are available to sign. You know, and please buy the also, books. Please yeah. uh, buy some books and uh, chat with him. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you.